Well, good morning again. Welcome to Bentonville Community Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today. The song said, there's no place I would rather be. And so here we are gathered as the people of God. We've been in this sermon series called Different. Peter, in uh, his letter to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, reminds them that they're called to be a little different in the world. This world is not their home. And so uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 today. I invite you to turn there and, and we're going to explore that together. But you know what would be helpful is to learn a little bit about Peter. He's the one writing to this church. And so what is his background? Where did he come from? What are the things that are going on in his mind and in his heart as he writes this letter to the churches there uh, scattered throughout Asia Minor? So we know a little bit about him as, as Jesus called him to be one of his followers. Um, but we know a lot about him because of his vocation. He was a fisherman. And let's learn a little bit this morning about what it meant to be a fisherman in the first century. It was a very blue-collar job, not a glamorous job by any means, but a very necessary job. Fish was a staple. It was a common food in that uh, day and time. And um, people, uh, fishermen had this reputation, uh, sort of like fishermen today. They don't always tell the truth, do they? But fishermen had a little unscrupulous uh, reputation in the first century. And um, part of this had to do with the fact that because fishing was necessary, because you know, people had to go out and get fish and take it to the market, there was this group of religious leaders that were known as the Pharisees, and they had this very strict idea of what it meant to follow the law and to keep the Sabbath. And they didn't have a real high opinion of fishermen because... Well, sometimes fishermen had to violate Sabbath so that people could eat. And so fishermen had this reputation of not being very observant in the Jewish law. So what this meant is if you were a fisherman, if that was a family business, there's no way you would ever be noticed by any one of the rabbis. I mean, the dream of a lot of families, a lot of, a lot of Jews living in the first century would be, we want our son to grow up and to be noticed by the rabbis, and the rabbi take them into their school and to train them and teach them. But if you come from a fishing background, no rabbi is going to take a chance on you. You've got this pretty bad reputation for being a fisherman. And so, is there any chance that Peter would ever grow up to be a rabbi or to have some place of leadership in first century Judaism? Zero. Zip. Zilch. I'm telling you, there's not a chance that that would happen. And you sort of see this uh, play out in the Gospels. He's known as Simon, son of John, or Simon Barjona, which literally just means the son of John. And it's, yes, he is John's son. There's nothing bad about that. But it is this reminder that John was a fisherman. John's dad was a fisherman. His dad was a fisherman. It was the family business and so the gospel writers are saying, here's Simon, son of John, son of a fisherman. All he ever is going to be is a fisherman. This is his lot in life. And then one day Peter's life changed. John chapter 1 tells us that Andrew, his brother, had an encounter with Jesus. Look at verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Immediately, when Jesus saw Simon, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, here we are, son of John, 
son of a fisherman. You're Simon, son of John. You will be called Kepha, which when translated is Peter. Kepha in Aramaic, in Greek, it means Petros, and Petros in English is rock, Peter or rock. Jesus immediately changed his name. Jesus immediately saw the potential that Peter had. All his life, all he ever thought he would be is Simon the fisherman, the son of John. And Jesus says, if you will follow me, if you'll be a part of what God is doing in this kingdom of God, I'm going to make you Kepha, Petras, rock. I'm going to build what I'm doing. There's leadership potential in you, Simon. There's leadership potential. You can be more than who society and culture says that you are locked in to be. And all of the potential that Peter had was unlocked when he made this decision to follow Jesus. Jesus saw what other people couldn't see. And the heart of the gospel, the heart of what Jesus said to Peter is, you belong here. Your gifts, your talents, your graces, all the things that make you, you, you belong here and I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build this movement on you. You're rock. You're the rock. And that's the gospel for us today, that when we accept the invitation to follow Jesus, we discover who we were created to be. We discover that our gifts and our talents and our abilities, they reach their full potential only in Christ. Only when they are married together with this kingdom of God do they reach their full potential, and we can be more than we ever dreamed of being. But it begins with the gospel saying, you belong. There's nothing about you that would exclude you from entry into this thing God is doing. You belong. By the grace of Christ, you belong. You're accepted. You're welcomed here. And Peter experienced that. And he's writing to people who know what it's like to be excluded. They know what it's, they know what it's like to be pushed out. And Peter is reminding them that you belong to Jesus. You belong to the kingdom of God, that God is doing something and he invites you to be a part of it. And so on the one hand, the gospel is you belong, welcome, we're glad you're here. Peter writes to this group of believers and says, on the other hand, when we discover our belonging in Christ, there's a flip side to that coin. The corollary to that is we look at the world where we live we look at culture around us, and it becomes very clear where we don't belong. It becomes very clear where we don't fit in. Following Jesus means we become, our lives become incompatible with the ways of this world. And here are these persecuted Christians. They belong in Christ, but they look around them, and Peter's saying, look, there's situations, there's habits, there are institutions, there's patterns, there's ways of living in this world where you don't belong. Clearly, you're a part of something else, and this way of living is incompatible with that. And so that's the first thing Peter says here in the first six verses. Let's read it together. First Peter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, 
drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead now, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So I'm going to pause right there. We're going to get to the rest of this passage. But let's pause right there and see this tension that Peter is describing. There's this tension. There are those who choose to follow Jesus, and they're called to live not for human desires, but what does Peter say? But live for the will of God. And he goes on to describe those human desires. And these are not Sunday morning approved words or concepts, but they are in the Bible. So living according to the sinful desires means all of the things that were present in the Roman Greek culture of that time. He mentions debauchery, which is, well, you know, I mean, like, look, look, look some of this stuff up, okay? Um, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Uh, I've been called a lot of things. I don't think I've ever been accused of any of that. But look some of this stuff up. It's bad stuff. It's destructive stuff. Peter really sums it up in a nutshell and says the ways of this world is described by wild and reckless living. Unrestrained living. Untethered to any kind of standard of what is right and what is wrong. Culture was was very much permissive. You can do what you want to do. You can sleep with who you want to sleep with. You can use what you want to use, drink what you want to drink. You can abuse and indulge in all of this, and you can be completely untethered to any kind of standard, any, any kind of community of people that tells you to restrain some of these desires. That is not gonna, that's not going to work in Greek and Roman culture. The, 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 the basic kind of premise of it all was, do as thy will. Do as thy will. Do whatever feels good. Do whatever you like. And, and whoever's telling you not to do something or not to sleep with someone or, or not to use this, they're, they're, they're just too old, too traditional. Man, they're trying to put you in a box. They're trying to take away all your fun. Now, am I describing the first century or the 21st century? You see what's going on there? Not a whole lot is not a whole lot has changed. Not a whole lot has changed. And so, so followers of Jesus, we have this word from, from 1 Peter that is so applicable for us today, where he's saying, You belong in the gospel, you belong with Jesus. You, you, this is where you you're, you're, the, the potential of your life really blossoms and flourishes when you submit your life to Jesus. And it's good and it's rich and it's satisfying. But once you experience that, once you become face-to-face with Jesus and you understand how His love and grace transforms your life and you begin living that way, you're going to see the world differently and it's going to become very clear where you don't belong, where your life doesn't fit because this way of Jesus is so different from the way of this world. And so we want to say, this world is not my home. I'm a citizen of a different kingdom I'm a citizen of a different world. 
And yet at the same time, there's tension here. There's tension here because in the sovereignty and the providence of God, He has put you in this world. And I do love that hymn of the church that says, this is my Father's world. Let us not think that the physical stuff, the, the, the world out there is, is somehow ruled and, and reigned by powers of darkness. This is my Father's world. And He is sovereign over it all. And He is in the business and the work of redeeming it and moving all of human history to an intended goal and completion. And it would be easy for us, living in this tension, to use this moment as a retreat, as an oasis. Oh, I'm so glad to be here on a Sunday morning. I'm so glad they're serving good coffee now. I can come here on a Sunday morning. I can be with people who share the same values that I have. We can gather in this place, and it can be a breath of fresh air from this wild and reckless world that we live in. But this has to be more than an oasis. This has to be more than a breath of fresh air because God has put you where you are living. God has put you in a neighborhood for a reason. God's put you in a school for a reason. You have a mortgage. You pay taxes. You have a job. You're a citizen of a certain city, a certain country, a certain state. You vote in elections. You live move, breathe, play in this world. And so we have to be, we have to live in this tension to recognize that we're citizens of a a kingdom, but to also recognize that this kingdom is breaking in and it has the potential to transform this world and God wants to use us to do that. And so as we live in this tension, what are some options that we have? As we hear what Peter is saying, we want to we avoid this sinful, wild, reckless living, untethered from anything, this world that indulges in all of our, you know, base desires. We want to run from that, and we want to embrace the kingdom of God. But what, what options do we have? So followers of Jesus, living in a world where they don't belong, we have three options. And these are all biblical, and there's probably more but what if I boiled it down to three this morning? Our first option is to retreat. And sometimes that, that is necessary. You need the oasis. You need the breath of fresh air. Sometimes we, we need to retreat from this world and, and to recognize that there are patterns and institutions and ways of living in the world that I cannot be a part of and be a follower of Jesus. It is it is. It is against my values. It's against what I believe. It's against who I am. There's just not a way for me to be involved in that. And so sometimes the position of Christians is to retreat, and and it's necessary. I'm reminded of my friend Jordan. He has a ministry that he's a part of. It's called Hope is Alive. And, And this ministry helps people who have fallen into patterns of addiction. They're addicted to various narcotics, and they find themselves constantly in this pattern of using and abusing drugs and and not being able to break out of that. And and the ministry is built certainly on some steps and some things that help people move out of that kind of pattern of living. 
But really what has made it transformative is this, this emphasis on communal living. Hope is Alive says that if, if, if these men are going to break out of cycles and patterns of addiction, they're going to have to retreat from communities of addiction. They're going to have to retreat from communities where that is accepted and practiced. And so as men live together in homes, they do life together, they share life together, they work certain steps to help them break free of addiction, and God transforms their life. It's an 18 to 24-month process. It's a long process. It's a tedious process. But God uses the decision to retreat and to live in community with people who are on that same journey to accomplish their transformation. So Christians, sometimes we have to retreat. And, and how many of us would be honest enough to say, I'm living in this world and there are patterns in my life that are destroying me. There are things in my life that are completely incompatible with who God has called me to be. And the Holy Spirit is telling me to retreat. To retreat away from that and to find a place where I can thrive and grow and recover. So, so, so there is the option to retreat and it's necessary. There's also this option to resist. Sometimes Christians living in these cultures and living in these patterns have to take a position of resistance. One of the things going on in this culture is that, that there are, uh, there's worship of lots of other gods. The Greek and the Roman gods were all connected to some, something that happens in you know, like weather patterns or whatever. So there was a god of fertility. There was a god of, of, of this you know, thing and God of that. And, and so there would be these festivals, these festivals that celebrate the God of fertility that brings the rain. And so let's get together and let's drink a lot and do a lot of other stuff that Peter describes there in the first part of this chapter. And as humans get together and they do all this stuff and they engage in all these desires, the gods will be pleased, they'll send the rain, the crops will grow, the farmers will harvest them, the merchants will sell them, and everyone will get rich. But it begins with the worship of these idols and these gods that, that make it all happen. And so these festivals would happen. And it would just be a big, you know, like, like the worst part of Bikes, Blues, and Barbecue. Uh, imagine that going on a lot. Um, that kind of thing. And so, which is coming up, by the way, right? Man, do not be on the roads in two weeks, man. You better find a different way to get through Rogers. In two weeks. <laughs> it is burned in my, I'm not a biker, but I know not to go anywhere near because I want to like get somewhere without waiting an hour. Um, so there's also these trade guilds. And so like the leather workers and the silver workers and the, the people that, that do, have, are, do certain trades and certain things. They have this guild, and they have a God attached to them, and, and so they have festivals, and they get together, and, and if you want to be a part of the trade guild, you have to do certain things, and there's very much a financial component to this. So you got to participate in all of this stuff if you're a silversmith so you can get jobs, so you can make money, so you can support your family, but it begins by participating in this first century trade guild. And so Christians are there, they don't believe in idols. They don't believe in other gods. They affirm 
Jesus as the one true God. And Peter is saying, we have to resist all that. We can't engage all that. And there's silversmiths in the congregation saying, okay, Peter, I hear what you're saying, but I've got to put food on the table. What does that mean for me? And we don't have, you know, idols, physical idols, but we do have this idol called just money. Man, that's our idol. That's our, that's our festival. That's our commerce. That, that's, our, that's, our, that's the center of so much of our culture, so much of what goes on in our world I mean, it boils down to just, does it make money? Does it increase the bottom line? And if it increases the bottom line, then it's good. And if it doesn't increase the bottom line, and if it doesn't increase shareholder value, then it's bad. I mean, it really is that simple in so many contexts. And so in the first century, Peter's saying, hey, look, y'all, follow the money. (laughs) If you want to engage in all of that and have all of that, guide your life, you're, you're not going to be living the way Jesus has called you to live. And here we are in the 21st century, and we're still following the money. It, it can become our, our idol. And so these silversmiths and farmers and leather workers and all these people were being called out of that. And look what Peter says, verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless and wild living. And what are the people who do participate in that? What are they doing? They heap abuse on you. So Peter's saying when, when we're called to resist in this culture, when we're called to resist this way of thinking and this way of life and resist these idols, there's going to be a price to pay. But do we trust God? Do we trust that we can be who, the, who God has called us to be and we can live in a way consistent with who Jesus has called us to be Do we believe that Jesus is enough, that Jesus will sustain us, that this way of the kingdom is the way that truly brings life? Or will we turn to the idols? And specifically for us, will we turn to the idol of our resources and our bottom line thinking? My friend was a leader in a a major company. And I I realize in this town, so many of us uh, live in this tension. He was a leader in a major company, and he was describing to me how this works out in the decisions that he makes every day. He, he said something that I'll never forget. He said, Pastor, I hear who Scripture is calling me to be, and I see what my company is calling me to do, and it's so gray. There's, there's like so much ambiguity. Like daily, I'm trying to figure out, like, is this a business decision consistent with who I am as a follower of Jesus Christ? And we talked about that a lot, and it really gave me an insight into his world and and a lot of your worlds. But here's a a watershed moment for him that that he shared with me about, and and I think you will be able to relate to this. He said, I, I, got a, I got a directive from people way higher than me. And he was pretty high up. But people way higher than me saying, this, 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 this person, this person, all had to be slashed, all had to be cut. Everybody needed to be laid off because 
there were certain objectives that the company needed to achieve and certain bottom lines that had to be hit. And nobody did anything wrong, but these people need to be fired. They need to be let go. And in the wake of these people being fired and let go, there's the people that remain who are going to have to pick up and do all their jobs. And so people who were already working 50 hours a week are now going to have to work 70 hours a week. All because somebody way up there said, we need to increase shareholder value. And he said, I, 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 everything about it felt wrong. It just felt wrong. It was a decision based entirely on bottom line thinking. And, and, and I really got this sense that people way ahead of me didn't really understand how it was going to impact people way below me. So here I was in the middle. Here I was in the, the ambiguity, the gray of all of it. And it just didn't feel right. And he said, you know, I made a decision. I made a decision to push up. I made a decision to resist. I, I, I made a decision to say, look, there's got to be a better way than slashing this person's job and this and that. There's got to be a better way. And so this person did something that's very rare in this moment, but used their influence to push up and to say, can we find a better way? Because this way of solving the problem isn't going to work. Made a decision based on his values, based on what he knew and thought to be right. In this instance, they all lived happily ever after. He did push up. He did say, we have to think differently about this. He did say, you're not thinking about families and livelihoods and people that this is going to affect. And they found a different solution. Friends, I realize it doesn't always work that way. But may we always be attentive to the gods and the idols in our life. May we always be attentive to the gods and the idols in our life and the way they direct our decision-making and our values. Sometimes we have to resist. But after we're done retreating for a season, when we find the grace and the strength in Christ to resist, more often than not, God will provide a way for this third option. And that is to partner with him to redeem the world. To redeem what is going on. To offer a different vision of, of what is going on in the world. And, and so Peter envisions a community of people who might partner with God to redeem this world. And how might they do it? What kind of power would they exert? What kind of influence would they exert? What kind of levers are they going to pull Look at verses 7 through 11. Look at the means by which the people of God can stand in the midst of culture and partner with God to redeem it. Verse 7. Peter says the end of all things is near, which is just a statement to say this is really urgent. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, which by the way, if you're going to push up against some of those powers, you need to pray. Therefore, be alert and be of sober mind that you may pray. Above all, here's our strategy, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And then Peter breaks out into worship and doxology. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Here's the strategy as we partner with God to redeem the world. We love deeply. Love one another deeply from the heart, for love covers over a multitude of sins. It covers over a multitude of injustices. It covers over all that is wrong with our world. When we become a a vessel and a channel through which God can love the world, it has a transformative effect. Strategy number one, to redeem the world, to partner with God in its redemption. Love deeply, and then what does Peter say? Offer hospitality. Love in such a way that your tables are open, your homes are open, your arms are open, so that this same welcome that Peter received when he had an encounter of Christ, may we also extend that same welcome to those around us. And Peter says we are to be stewards of this grace. You know what a steward is? Someone that that manages, that stewards what they have received and, and is willing to share it with others. May we be a steward of this grace. And as we do that, we partner with God in the redemption of the world. Here's our call to love deeply and to offer hospitality. To be a steward of this grace that, that we have received. And here's where I think Peter is heading with all of this as we think about leaving the oasis of this place and going out into the world and and living in some of those tough gray ambiguous places here's what i think god will do through us the authenticity of our lives and the passion of our faith it extends a long welcome to an unbelieving world think about this the authenticity of our lives what you say you do, your yes is yes, your no is no. You live out what you proclaim or who you proclaim yourself to be. The authenticity of our lives and the passion of our faith. This is exciting to us. This is deep down inside of us. It extends a long welcome. Don't think this is going to happen overnight. This is a long welcome. This is a long play. This is a long strategy. It extends a long welcome to an unbelieving world. So here we are, church, living in this tension. You know, sports brings out the best of us and the worst of us, doesn't it? You always know where the t-ball field is because it's the loudest field. There's lots of parents and grandparents there, and they're all cheering for their son or daughter to go get the ball. Brings out passion in us. And, and, and I've been involved with youth sports for, for quite some time, and I've seen this. I've seen how it, boy, sometimes it brings out the worst in us. Sometimes you walk away from the ballpark and you're like, I could have lived without that. As people lose their mind over certain things. But I'm not going to give up on sports. Nope. Not going to give up. As, as, as mixed up in, in lots of As mixed up as it can be, I'm not ready to give up on it because 
as I've been involved in sports, I have recognized how developing a team, coaching a team, working with young people, the process of putting a team together and trying to accomplish certain goals, I have, I have recognized how all of that is such an amazing platform for forming and shaping young women and men. And just, just going through that process, there's just so much potential to develop leaders and develop uh, kids of, of, of character. And so even though there's been a few moments I've walked away from the ballpark and I've said, eh, man, Lord help us. There's been so many more moments where, where I've, I've just seen things come together and, and thought, boy, I think God was present in that. And I, and I want to tell you about my friend. She coaches a baseball team and and she was telling me about this, this past year, putting this team together, and, and she had tryouts. And, and one of the reasons you have tryouts is, let's just be honest, you want to win. Like, we need some people who can pitch, we need some people who can catch, we need some people who can hit, we need some people who can run fast and jump high and do all the things. So you have tryouts, because you want to win. And there was a young man that, that tried out for her team, and I don't know that he was the fastest. I don't know that he hit really great. I don't know that he caught everything his way. And she said, I was, I was just on the verge of, of, of sending his mom a note to say that he didn't make it this year. And, and, and I, I had it all typed up to say, thanks, but no thanks. And then I felt something in my heart that said, you know, why don't you give that young man a second look? Maybe, maybe there's something that can happen with that young man on your team. And so she backed that message up, decided to take this young man on her team. And it was about three or four weeks into practice. And she was sharing with me how it was going. And uh, she, she, she noticed that Boy, this, this young man was responding a whole lot better than she thought he would to her coaching and to what they were doing and, and the things that, that were happening on the field. And he just seemed to have a smile on his face. He just seemed to be having fun. He was, we were getting, he was getting better results on the field. And she told me just last week that she got an email from this young man's mom. And this email said, I cannot tell you the difference that you have made in my son's life. The last two years at school have been the hardest of his life. He hasn't been accepted. He hasn't been welcomed. There's been things said to him that no young man should ever have to hear. And you are having a tremendous impact on his life. And I just want to say thank you. I appreciate the investment you're making in my son's life. And, and, and I think that's an example of what happens when followers of Jesus are, are in this world. They're in this world, and we have this set of values, and, and we have this word from Peter that says, love deeply and offer hospitality. Because in the world of sports, particularly, it's a meritocracy. You're rewarded on what you do, what you accomplish. Can you run fast and jump high and throw far? But here's a follower of Jesus putting a team together that said, you know what, there might be something bigger at play here than running fast and jumping high and throwing far. 
There might be something that God wants to do here. And so we love deeply and we offer hospitality. And it's a long welcome. If you know anything about sports, seasons can get really long. But you show up day after day and you live out your values and you live out who Jesus has called you to do. And you allow your life to be a platform for the good news of Jesus Christ. And the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ is all are welcome. All are invited. All are invited to come and to experience the transformation of their lives and to become more than they ever could become on their own. And so church, here we are. This is our calling. There's a little addendum to the story. And that is, I discovered yesterday that this young man came up with the bases loaded. His team was down by two runs. And understand that he hit a ball into right field that scored two runs, tied the game. They don't always live happily ever after, but yesterday they did. Because God is good. And God is present. And he invites us to his table. We're all are welcome. So we're invited to, to love deeply, to offer hospitality, to be this kind of people in the world.